0: Well, good morning. Good morning. morning. Contrary to what that clock in the back says, we are actually a minute over, not two minutes behind. And I have to keep reminding myself of that. But Dylan reminded me that, do you remember what, what the date was on our first session of Augustine? you remember it was a certain day that we celebrate once a year for mothers? (laughs) <laughs> mother's day was the first sunday where we started augustine and here we are 10 now on the 10th session and this is the last one i hope it doesn't feel like it's been an eternity feels like i've put a lot of time into it so i've just been all about this guy so it feels very long for me but this is the last one and of course no 10 session study on augustine is going to tell you everything about the guy no 10-session course about your life would tell somebody, somebody everything about you either. There's a lot of things that we don't get to cover, uh, we don't get to dive deep enough into, but this is certainly um, beneficial for getting the big picture of some of the most important historical figures. So. Down the line, I intend to do another historical study. I'm not going to do it right after this one, but down the line, we'll do another one. There's a lot of different people we can choose from. I was even thinking like C.S. Lewis, or t- go, on, go off the charts a little bit, but we'll see what we do. <coughs> but we are on the 10th session of Augustine, and this one's titled The Enduring Legacy of Augustine. He has a legacy that affects you personally and affects the development of the West, probably more so than most of us realize. We'll talk about that. The devotional question for today, should I be concerned about leaving a legacy on earth? Now, I'm going to channel Roger for a second. Is that a good question? First of all, is that a good question? Is that a good Roger voice? Not really. (laughs) Is it a good question? Should I be concerned about leaving a legacy on earth? I mean, the answer, you, the, the answer immediately comes to your head of what the answer should be. But by the way that we live our lives, do we practically live in such a way that we are concerned with the legacy being left? That we are concerned about generations to come, the world in 100 years, and what your impact will be on what your family, your descendants will look like in 100 years? I think a lot of us can get this escapist mindset. Oh, I'm out of here in a few years anyway. Oh, the Lord's coming back uh, next week anyway. Any day now, I don't need to worry. So we might know the right answer. Should I be concerned about leaving a legacy on earth? But if you have this escapist mindset and you're... You're not concerned about what the world's going to look like in 1, two hundred, one thousand 1,000 years. Yes, Christ might not come back for a 1,000 years. It could be 10,000 years. Biblically, theologically, we have to accept this. And so the way that you think about legacy, I do believe, impacts the way that you will invest in the next generation. We're going to talk about that. Should I be concerned about legacy, leaving a legacy on earth? Well... The guy we're talking about this morning was had a very profound legacy on earth. And of course, that is the church father, Augustine. And the first thing to consider is Augustine's legacy of life. Not the most profound point there, but his legacy of life. There are few people as important historically as Augustine. In the very first sense, simply because of when he was alive. Do you remember what about when he was alive? Do we do we remember? Three hundred eighty-seven. He's born in three fifty-four. Very very close. And then he died in four thirty. Yeah. So we're looking at the three fifties to the four thirties. That's a that's a period of history that we don't know very much about we're pretty removed from that time of history so even just for the fact that he gives us a link into the ancient world that already makes him important because we don't have very many surviving writings from those centuries not only that but he is alive when Rome is on its last legs he doesn't know this but for most of his life, Rome gets sacked, obviously, in 410. But they recover, kind of, and then just goes da- keeps going downhill. Do you imagine living here in Canada? Let's say in the Lord's providence, Canada is headed for its ruin. And we have maybe 30, 40 years left. And then Canada is going to stop existing as the nation that we know it. Like, sitting here right now, we have no idea. We can look at signs and trends and... If we're trying to live as Christians in the earth, we're going to try to be a gospel witness no matter where our culture is at. But we wouldn't know necessarily that Canada's on its last legs. In 40 years, it's done. We just don't know. God knows that. And so Augustine's living at a time when Rome is in transition and transition not for the positive. They are very rapidly deteriorating as an empire. (laughs) So he gives us a link into ancient Rome, into Rome on its last days. And so it's significant that he gives us a link into that time. Because very few writings survive from past centuries. We also get to answer questions about how certain beliefs developed over time. For instance, have you heard of the just war theory? The just war theory is a theory regarding Christianity and War, which there's a few views on this, which states that war is only justifiable if it is serving a purpose of justice. So you don't just, it's not right as a Christian to just go be in war over, I don't know, you can think of a hundred thousand different examples of things that are basically meaningless. But entering World War II, That's a matter of supreme justice and so that would satisfy conditions of just war and there's conditions for that. He, Augustine, is one of the main proponents of just war theory and one of the earliest voices we have for it. Not sure that doctrine develops as it does without him. Here's another one. Sacralism. Now sacralism is the idea that we don't look at a separation of church and state, but they serve purposes together. And so the state is supposed to enforce what the church puts onto society. So this is where you get your judging of heretics, your condemning of those who are against the faith. He was a sacralist, Augustine was. He wasn't always, but if you'll remember the Donatist controversy, that's when things started where he he changed his view on this because the Donatists were schismatic. They were being obstinate. They would not come back to the mainline church. And then the emperor threatened them. We will take away your churches. We will take away your titles. We will even put you in prison. Stop this attitude. Come back to the church. And it was remarkably effective. As soon as that political pressure got put on the heretics, they started coming back. Augustine saw it be effective. He was a sacralist. Who else in history were big sacralists at times when heretics would be punished and killed? The Reformation time. Both the Roman Catholic Church and the the original Protestant reformers were sacralists. Does that make us uncomfortable? It might. But Augustine, for better or for worse, because we have his writings, because he's left us a legacy, we are able to track how ideas develop over time. And a lot of the Protestant reformers and the Roman Catholics used Augustine as support for burning heretics. This is why history is important. If you don't know where you come from, well, this is another matter, but if you don't know where you come from, you can be easily controlled. That's another thing. History teaches us a lot about how things have developed. It gives us a sense of identity. It teaches us that God is about more than just us. He's been involved in every century. We have to guard against the temptation to look into past times by our views of Christianity to the point where there's no Christian then outside of people who agree with me. we got to guard against this stuff. The more we know about history, the more we know about legacies of these guys... We will see that the Lord has worked with his people all through church history, has allowed things to develop as they have. We've have sharpened our views of some things for the better. And then some views have been applied for the worse. This is how it works when sinful people are serving a holy God. Now, how about Augustine's legacy? Where does it start? Of course, with his, in his birth. But really, the legacy of the guy we know of as Augustine His legacy starts with Monica. Monica, his mother. Without Monica, there's no Augustine. And I don't just mean that in the physical sense. I mean, without her steadying gospel presence when he was raised to be a pagan, without her, Augustine never becomes this guy. We're not talking about him today. His legacy really starts with her. And I want to say that it's striking that Monica died not being in any book. Right? Monica had no idea that people 1,600 years later would be talking about her. Shes not Augustine hadn't written a Christian book yet by the time she died. Uh, for all she knew, um, she was just going to fade away into mostly irrelevancy. She loved her son. she just wanted to see her son convert as she saw her husband convert on the deathbed. But she had no fame. She wasn't popular she had no clue that she would end up in Augustine's books and that 1,600 years later, we are learning from her legacy. We are learning from her. We know about her. And this is often how legacy works. When you get very concerned and consumed with having a title or thinking yourself all so important in what you do, that is often when you become very uh, you become the least effective is when you start believing your own hype. But if you are humbly serving and doing your job as working unto the Lord and you just let God take care of how that's going to develop, usually those are the more powerful legacies. But those who just want to follow their own hype, that, that's when you start running into pride coming before the fall and uh, serving yourself rather than the Lord's purposes. So... This is something that Augustine said. He wrote this in Confessions. I'll be quoting Confessions a couple times. He wrote this about Monica. It's a somewhat longer quote. You did see, O Lord, how once when I was still a child, I was suddenly seized with stomach pains and was at the point of death. You did see, O my God, for even then you were my keeper, With what agitation and with what faith I solicited from the piety of my mother and from your church, which is the mother of us all. The baptism of Christ, my Lord and my God, the mother of my flesh, was much perplexed, for, with a heart pure in faith, she was always in deep travail for my eternal salvation." If I had not quickly recovered from the stomach pains, she would have provided forthwith for my initiation and washing by your life-giving sacraments. That is, she would have forced him to get baptized. Confessing you, O Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. So my cleansing, my baptism, was deferred as if it were inevitable that if I should live, I would be further polluted. His baptism was postponed because he was going to go down a life of sin. It's as though God knew that. And further, because the guilt contracted by sin after baptism would be still greater and more perilous. They had this view back then that sins after your baptism are more grievous than sins before your baptism. We normally don't speak that way today, but that was a view in his time. I ask you, O oh my God, for I would gladly know if it be you, your will, to what good end my baptism was deferred at that time? Was it indeed for my good that the reins were slackened, as it were, to encourage me in sin? Monica almost forced him to get baptized as a young child, because he was at the point he was very sick. She withheld. It wouldn't have been okay for her to do that. But she did withhold. She didn't do it. He recovered. The idea, again, baptismal regeneration, at least the prototype of that, was in existence at this time. And he's not baptized. And he's asking God, why? Why did it have to be deferred? Could that have started a life of faith then? Uh, Or did you know that I was about to go down a perilous line of sin and that doing this post-baptism would have condemned me all the further? so he's trying to understand the lord's sovereignty in the timing of these things and that it was actually for his good that this stuff didn't happen right away but he needed to go through all those things that he went through with um, with the manichaeans 9 years in a false religion he fell into the new academy those were like skeptics uh, he He had to deal with his own uh, sin when it comes to sexuality. He had two different concubines during his life. These are things that he had to work through before getting to the end of himself. Before surrendering. He then said this, again, we're still talking about Monica. Woe is me. Then whose words were they but yours, which by my mother, your faithful handmaid, you poured into my ears. None of them, however, sank into my heart to make me do anything. She deplored and, as I remember, warned me privately with great solicitude not to commit fornication, but above all things, never to defile another man's wife. Listen to this. These appeared to me but womanish counsels, which I would have blushed to obey. Yet they were from you, and I knew it not. I thought that you were silent, and that it was only she who spoke. Yet it was through her that you did not keep silence toward me. And in rejecting her counsel, I was rejecting you. Think about how the Lord teaches us through another person, you have any mentors in your life? Any people who took time with you to help you through <coughs> your thoughts, your struggles in life, even your doctrine, false thinking? Um, I know that I've had plenty of those people, and some of them are in this room. So, the legacy, our legacy, is helped. By others. God's speaking to us through our mentors, our friends, even our critics. The Lord can teach us things through other people. And He's saying that when I rejected my mother's wise advice, which was godly advice, He was rejecting the Lord's teaching, essentially. Again, He was not somebody who could have been a, a legitimate Christian early in life. When Christianity becomes a state religion in 381, he is already an adult, but he is not, not near Christ at the time. Anybody who comes into Christianity without having the surrendered heart, without getting the new heart, without getting regeneration, that person, you can tell when they don't show fruit that they don't actually have regeneration If he would have come in just for the political pressure or the social status he could have got for Christianity, he would have been just as useless, if not harmful, to the Christian cause as anybody else who was taking it just to be a nominalist. You know, a nominal Christian, in name only. It isn't a genuine, real faith. That would have been him if things didn't develop the way that they did. But God was working a legacy through him in his life. It took till he was 32 years old, but The Lord was working his purposes, and it could not have worked any other way for him. Comments like those about his mother, these are all over the confessions. It's really a great work. If you ever get the chance to read the confessions, I do recommend it. Get one of those that have explanatory notes on the bottom, though. Sometimes he'll be talking about stuff like, what is he talking about? Oh, that's, that's what it was. Uh, for example, I quoted to you before when he didn't see the scriptures as being worth the dignity of the the time to go through and read them all. Uh, he considered them to have less dignity than that of Tilly. Tilly, who's Tilly? Tilly is Cicero. It was a nickname. If you, it was Cicero. So the the old Greek guy. So. If you don't have those explanatory notes, you'll be like, what is he talking about? Oh, it's just Cicero. So I do recommend reading Confessions, but get one that has some explanatory notes. Augustine has also been an example, speaking of legacy, for people who struggle deeply with particular sins. For instance, he completely surrendered his desire for sex and marriage to God. He greatly struggled with being apart from women. He had the mother of his son. He was with her for some 12 years, and then they, they departed from one another. It wasn't long after that that he took on another concubine. While his mother's trying to prepare marriage for him, he's, he, he's finding somebody else. This was one of the biggest struggles that he had, and he prayed that famous prayer, which is right in Confessions again. Lord, give me continence, but not yet. <laughs> and so that was a big struggle for him and right before conversion he recalls that he is he just gave up following his own sexuality chasing after women all these types of things he was very drawn to the aesthetic of a uh, of a single life of that celibate there it is of a celibate life and After he converts, he is given the gift of singleness. Not everybody has it. Most people won't. For most people, it's not a gift. But if you have it, you will be given the strength to go through it. That doesn't mean you won't sometimes struggle with loneliness. But he was very effective as a single man, just as Christ was, just as uh, Paul was. So he, he's an example to people who struggle with particular sins. And for him, it was his desire for sex. <clears throat> we wouldn't emulate all parts of his life. I've brought up before the sending away of the mother of his son. This is one of the biggest ones that we struggle to understand. Do you remember why did, they, why did he send her away? Do you remember the reasons for that? Why did he send his miss lower class. lower class was a big reason yeah so they had a class society he was from a more upper class she was from a common class that is you don't get married in that way yeah you can like have fun together or whatever but you don't get married ble- uh, breaching the classes like that. The other one was, as a Christian, it mattered to him what the origins was of the relationship. They didn't come together in a holy way, in a right way, in a pure way. So that's that's a block. Like We didn't do this rightly, so now we're going to split it off. We're going to separate from this. Is this the counsel we would give today when somebody converts and their partner is not a Christian yet? No, we would probably sit down with them and encourage them to try to win over their partner to the lord lead them to the lord don't don't just leave them but uh different time and that would not have raised any eyebrows back in his day nobody would have thought he was being cruel whereas we would say you you take the son you send her away and like because of class and because you didn't come together in a good way well yeah and it's foreign to us but that's That's 1,600 years ago. Again, was God working in that generation too? Was God's wisdom going out then too? Let's be honest about the time we're in. In 1,000 years, who will look at us and say, your guys' views were so weird on this. They might do that. Are we humble enough to be okay with that? Excuse me. Yes. Uh, maybe I should have asked this question uh, quite some time ago, but your initial question was, we have a legacy. Yep. Um, do you have any scriptural references for that? I will be bringing up some scriptures later on. Okay. So we wouldn't emulate all parts of his life, but his overall legacy of life is one of fidelity, passion, holiness, wisdom, devotion, study, intellectual brilliance, hard work. He's a very hard worker. There's a lot of things we can learn from him. But one of the things I want to point out when it comes to his legacy of life, especially when it comes to Monica, sometimes your legacy will be about promoting the work of others. Not everybody is going to have the front and center, prime legacy. Sometimes your important life work will be about magnifying the work of somebody else. We all do that in some degree already when churches support their pastor. We're not... Two, three hundred people all trying to do our own thing. We're trying to support the work of, that the Lord is doing through our leaders. You do this typically in a marriage as well. One partner will lay down for the magnification of the other. This frequently happens in work relationships as well. Sometimes your legacy will be about promoting the work of others. And that is an aspect where we can put on the humility of Christ and do it or become hard-hearted and prideful and refuse to do it. Let's move on. Augustine's legacy now of work. Augustine's legacy of work. What immediately stands out from the body of work that he has left for us is essentially that, the immense bulk of it. He worked so much. He left us so many writings that we still have, even though what we have is certainly not everything that he wrote. Uh, For instance, he would preach over 300 sermons a year for 35-ish years he did that. Do the math, 35 times 300. Let's just be conservative here. Is that 9,500? Am I good at math? More than that, yeah. More than that, thank you. So he's got well over 9,000, possibly 10,000 sermons in his life. You know how many we have left? We have about 500. And then if you, contain, if you can add on another little body, and the, mo, the uppermost limit is 850-ish of his sermons, is how many that we have, which is still pretty good. If, to have that many sermons from somebody in the three and 400s. So, but most of it didn't survive. Why did some of them survive and not others? We don't necessarily know. But we do know that he was already considered an important figure even in his own day. His, he, he, was, he spoke as one with authority. Again, he was bishop of the city of Hippo. A lot of people looked up to him. He would have preached to probably every single person in the city at some point or another. But he was considered important in his day. And we know this simply for the fact that his work was being copied and circulated. That was a laborious task. By hand to hire a scribe to write down stuff. Most people couldn't re- even read. If you could get written materials and you could read, you had to have money. So this is not a minor point. If you're if you're copying down and circulating someone's writings back then, that's like this is an important work. We need to preserve this. You don't make those decisions lightly. And. So we have, at the uppermost limit, some 850 of his sermons written down and circulated. That alone tells you how much of an impact his work was having, even in his day. Copies have survived in many places. This also shows the widespread influence that he had. So yes, it's being copied in Hippo, but it's being copied in Italy, too. It's being copied near the Middle East as well, in the Holy Land, He's getting copied widely. There, that's his legacy. And they kept on making more and more copies for over a thousand years before the printing press. That's the other thing. Not only are they copying it in their day, but you have to keep on making copies because you lose them and damage and and fires and whatever. The printing press would come a thousand years later and they kept on making new copies for all those thousand years. That tells you how the church over time continued to value Augustine's legacy of work. Now, I have a question for you. I like to ask this question. Can you name a single person from the 1100s? All right, let's, let's try a different one. Can you name somebody from the 1800s? You can just shout it out. Who do you know from the 1800s? Charles Spurgeon. Okay. 1700s. Okay, nope. I think Dickens was... set. Oh, you might... I don't know for sure about that one, actually. Not sure. Just anybody from the... Anybody from the 1700s. Newton. Here you go. George Washington. 1600s. No. He, uh, Samuel de Champlain? Maybe he lived into the 1600s. Actually, it, it, it he was late it. 1500s, though. <laughs> what? Samuel de Champlain. Samuel de Champlain. Yeah. There, there's a teacher right there. <laughs> 1500s. Galvin. Uh, yeah. There we go. Jacques <laughs> Cartier. <laughs> 1400s. Columbus. 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 <laughs> Bye. <laughs> 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 <Biden. laughs> Biden Biden <laughs> <laughs> 1300s uh, Jan Hus Jan Hus I think he's the... I thought he was 14s he was the... uh, Who? Uh, Waldo Waldo yeah, I'll take his word for it <laughs> 1200s <Good grief>. 1100s <laughs> It's hard, isn't it? We don't know very many people from each generation. If I keep going back further and further, it'll be even harder and harder to even think of one name. And there's just a handful who stick out from each generation. And Augustine is a towering giant of the 300s. Again, it's going to give you a bit of a sense of his legacy that he has had. He's more impactful than most of us realize. But in the 1100s, the reason I asked that one, a man named Peter Lombard, great name, Peter Lombard, he was uh, was a Christian. He wanted to compile a systematic theology of the Latin Church Fathers, which Augustine was. This is in the year, this is around 1150. He, uh, He published a systematic called Sentences. Maybe you've heard in passing, if you've done any historical study, Sentences. The Sentences of Peter Lombard. This was a systematic theology that was taken from a compilation of the Latin Church Fathers. His primary source, of course, is Augustine. Uh, Augustine's not his only source, but he was the primary one. And this systematic from Peter Lombard became mandatory study in the West for every theology teacher. And the West is being considered kind of from Italy, Germany... West whereas the Eastern Orthodox Church was of course more Turkey Greece, not Russia, all of that so in the Western Church, all the way up until the Reformation, if you wanted to be a theology teacher, the sentences was mandatory study and you had to do a lec- you had to lecture on it and write a dissertation on it so every single theology teacher in the West was heavily aware of Augustine. Yeah. Now, did they always properly quote Augustine? Did they take him out of context? Of course they, of course they would, just like any of us would. But everybody was aware of him and was shaped by him. This inc- this went right on up until the Reformation. Everybody in the West was influenced by Augustine's writings in one way or another. Now, we brought up that guy from the 15 1600s John Calvin. We call ourselves Calvinists, even. Think about how much of your life is influenced by Calvin. Not only do we call ourselves Calvinists, but even if you don't like that title, if you believe in the overall sovereignty of God, that he is work, accomplishing his purposes, that we are not given autonomous free will to usurp the purposes of God, But he is the one who is powerful enough to work his purposes, especially in salvation. We believe what the Bible says about his elect and how he calls them from before the foundations of the world to be in the book of life. We owe something to John Calvin for writing this down, helping us understand it better. Of course, it's coming from the Bible. It's all right in the Bible. But it's helpful to read how God is used theologians, pastors, teachers, other regular folk just to write these things down and make them understandable to us. Because this book can be, it can be hard to understand if you're not properly led in how to understand it. You can come to some pretty faulty conclusions. We owe quite a bit to Calvin. Even the development of how the United States of America came about. Re- resisting the rule of the Anglican monarch of the of the English throne. And most of them who rose up, it was a compilation of different groups, but a heavy portion of them were Calvinists. Because of their beliefs, they did what they did. Why didn't they address Romans 13? Oh, I'm, I'm sure they did, but we... The, these views get sharpened in the middle of crisis. So... You know, a few hundred years of not having to deal with it. Then it comes up again. Then we talk about it more. So you don't always write about, you don't write about everything until it becomes very relevant to what's going on right then and there. Calvin's institutes, so again, actually going back to Calvin, he was a sacralist. Again, like before, he believed that the state should be accomplishing the purposes of the church. There was no need to write on Romans 13. It these things work together. Of course, the governor is going to do what the church tells him to do. Why would it be any other way? That, that was the sacralist in him. Calvin's Institutes is a very important book, whether we've read it or not. He quotes Augustine more than anybody else except the Bible. Other part of the legacy of work of augustine I'm this is going to feel somewhat rapid fire but I want to talk about his doctrinal impact and how immense it is that he helped clarify doctrines such as the big one original sin people understood that we were sinners before Augustine but he put pen to paper about how no the Bible says we're totally dead stop this I can win my own way to God plagianism stop stop with this it's not true original sin it in fact fe- it, it infects all of humanity, predestination and sovereign grace. He was, you could say, a proto-Calvinist. Obviously, Calvinism was not a, a title back then, but he taught and saw in Scripture predestination and sovereign grace. We didn't get to talk about this too much, but he wrote a bunch about the Trinity and how the Trinity is this relationship of love between the three divine persons, and there needs to be love in between them, and it's quite profound. We didn't get to get too far into that. But he gave us this picture of the trinity of love. Just war theory, which most Christians subscribe to just war theory. Not all, but he's the one who taught that. Sacralism. Again, for better or worse, Augustine's views stuck with the church for a long time. He taught sacralism after the Donatist stuff. And so it, it spread. Individual relationship with God. It wasn't just... As remember, in 381, when it becomes the state religion, you're incentivized to be a Christian, whether you actually are or not. Well, he taught it's an individual relationship of faith to the Lord. We take it for granted how this stuff develops, but he's the one who had to teach it in his time. Church universal, universal sin, inability to escape, scripture as the highest authority. That's a point that the Catholics don't like to hear. Scripture as the highest authority, everything created for a purpose, that is providence, faith as a journey that we take with the Lord, it all comes from him, Christian mission on earth, which he wrote about in City of God, he helped clarify a whole bunch of doctrine. The influence that he has had is immense. We've all been influenced by Augustine. So I want to now ask what has been somewhat of a running question throughout this series. I want to answer it. Who gets to claim him? Roman Catholics or Protestants? In the end, who gets to claim him? Well, neither existed in his day. The Roman Catholic Church was not what it is in his day. I've said a couple times... The Bishop of Rome did not claim authority over the other bishops until the 450s under Leo. There, he never deferred to Rome. So Roman Catholicism as we know it, where it kind of goes all up to the, to the vicar of Christ, the Pope, didn't exist in his day. Were there Protestants in his day? Nope. Protestant, protest, protesting the Roman Catholic Church. If the Roman Catholic Church didn't exist, the Protestants didn't exist. Neither of those titles were around in that day. Some of his doctrine was taken and expanded by Rome. Some were taken by the reformers. He doesn't fit perfectly into any modern distinction, and nor should he. We should not make the Augustan Church. Uh, Nobody should be taking every single point of his wholesale. As a historical figure, we must let him exist as a person in his time, in his context, without projecting modern categories or distinctions upon him. The Catholics can't claim him as a Roman Catholic. The Protestants can't claim him as a Protestant. It's historically inaccurate to say that he was either of those things. He would have rejected those titles. We can't put modern categories upon him. In a sentence... He simply desired to be biblically faithful. And sometimes he got it wrong. Most times he gets it right. Let's rejoice in God for the legacy of Augustine. Rather than fighting about who gets to have him. Both Protestants and Roman Catholics have taken some of his views. I would say that if you take the total picture... His views track better with the development within Protestantism. They used him more fairly in the development of doctrine. But yet, baptismal regeneration. That's a Catholic doctrine that we would not accept today. There are parts of him that fit more with Roman Catholicism. Although I think in the end, he more fits with Protestants. But we, you can't put him. You can't claim him in any either of those categories. Let's rejoice in God for the legacy of the saint. And so I want to end where we began with legacy. Should I be concerned with leaving a legacy on earth? Well, could you open to Psalm 78? Psalm 78. We began this whole Augustine series talking about the influence of a godly and faithful mother whose legacy was all about magnifying that of her boy, Augustine. She did not look for praise. She did not look to be in books. She did not look to be remembered 1,600 years later. And yet, in the Lord's providence, she is. Her legacy was about uplifting Augustine's legacy. And now, I want to see something biblical behind that. In Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob. And appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Should we be leaving a legacy on earth? Well, according to Psalm 78, according to the law of God, we are to be at minimum, actually primarily, teach it to the next generation. And notice how many generations it's even talking about, and the generation after. Think about the generations after, even beyond just your children, it's your grandchildren. I think grandparents might have one of the most blessed opportunities to be an influence into the next generation because of you have more time than people who are still involved in work, most of you, and the investment that you can put into your grandchildren will long outlive you. It's profound, the amount that we can do in terms of leaving a legacy to our children. But what we should be concerned about is teaching them who the Lord is, just as Monica tried to teach Augustine who the Lord was. And eventually, the seeds that were planted bloomed and grew to be the Augustine that we have today. Other biblical proof is in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2.2. You don't necessarily need to turn there. You've all heard this. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, yes, we are to be concerned. Think of the next generation. We should not be consumed with just me in my own time. Think of the next generation. The Lord might not come back for 10,000 years. Think of the next generation. And then leave a faithful legacy. And finally, leave the results to God. You can't force the legacy that you're going to have, but you can be faithful where he has placed you. And so that we end the way that we started. Let's take the example of both Monica and Augustine. Leave the results to God. He will make a legacy out of you. Be faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your, your scriptures and thank you for Augustine who sought to be faithful to them that we can learn from his example. Would you prepare our hearts now for the worship service to come? Let joy and gladness and thankfulness be in our hearts as we praise you. Amen.